Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, importantly appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. Um, before us, you are hoping to hear a broadcast, a live broadcast from Sally out from Out of the Pan show, but unfortunately it didn't work out, but it will still be recorded, so you can check that out, so stay tuned for updates on that, and make sure you check out it. So this week we are joined by Dylan Fernando, who's going to be discussing animal activism in Palestine. Welcome to the show, Dylan. Thanks for having me, Nick. And also we have Harley McDonald Eckersall, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, new member to the team who's also um, travelled to Palestine as well, um, who, yeah, we're going to uh, join in that discussion as well. So maybe just start things off. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite a, it's probably not the first thing a lot of animal activists would think of. Like, I'm going to go to Palestine. Like, how did this come about, your trip there? Yeah, so it sort of my interest in Palestine started with... Uh, an academic I met at a, at a at one of the critical animal studies conferences I was at a couple of years ago, Esther Alun, and she'd been doing a whole lot of research into animal activism in Palestine and sort of how they're how they're interacting or more importantly not interacting with um, animal activists in Israel. And so it seemed like a really interesting situation. And given the fact that we're in a kind of environment where where sort of getting this message out from Israel that it's this sort of vegan paradise. I thought it's a really interesting situation. And so, luckily enough, um, Esther happened to um, post about a, a tour that she had done. And so, these tours happened to be happening again, and they were run in coordination with the Palestinian Animal League, and they were political tours of Palestine. And there were eight-day tours, and it just sounded really fascinating. So, I talked to Harley about it, and we just had to jump on it. Well, actually, what actually happened there was that Delan tagged me and said, I'm probably not going to go, but you should go and tell me all about it. So then after much convincing, I convinced him to come along with me. Fair call so, out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Very fair so call So Dylan out. was keen for a second-hand account, but ended up yeah. with a first-hand account, I guess. And yeah, um, yeah Esther Allowne's work is really great. And we'll probably give this a plug at, at the end, but um, you can hear her talk animal activism in Palestine, Israel, on our website, freedomofspecies.org, as well as on iTunes. So definitely check that out. Um, I think her work is really very critical, very nuanced about what's going on there and the different and intersections between political issues and animal issues, etc. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Palestine Animal League, so maybe talk a bit about which groups you're involved with, how long you were there, etc. Yeah, so um, the tour, we were there overall for two weeks. The tour we were on was eight days. So during those eight days, so the tours were coordinated by the Palestinian Animal League. And I think the fact that the tours in their actuality focused a lot on the history of Palestine and the history of Israeli occupation. I think that says a lot about how connected the Palestinian Animal League is to human liberation. So the goal of the Palestinian Animal League is to kind of combine animal rights, human rights and land rights in this really multifaceted approach to dealing with liberation in Palestine. So they coordinated these tours but what we actually did, we spent one day in Ramallah, which is where this is the economic capital of Palestine, and that's where PAL is based. But apart from that one day, which we spent like, kind of learning a little bit about PAL's work, most of the time we were traveling around to different um, Palestinian territories or occupied territories and just learning about the occupation, learning about what it's like to live in Palestine as um and being treated like under the apartheid, the Israeli apartheid system. So it was really focused on, yeah, what it's like to be there, what those people are facing, and how, and the history of that. So yeah. Mm, yeah, and I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely worth stating that political occupation, stating that context, and we could do a whole show on that, and maybe we will do that <laughs> elsewhere, actually, but uh, for today, we'll cover it fairly briefly, but yeah. I think it's important to mention that to give a context in which animal activism, veganism, etc. is kind of taking place within. So you mentioned things like apartheid, and I know, um, yeah, 
activists from South Africa have actually made that comparison yeah. and not only said that it's similar, but it's actually worse in some ways as well. But do you want to elaborate a bit on that about the, yeah, the oppression and the occupation that Palestinian people face? Yeah, look, just before we jump into that, I want to just quickly address sort of the myths that we have around Palestine. So some of the most common stories which I kind of heard growing up around Palestine, in which I think Harley would um, mm. agree with that as well, is that we kind of had this idea that, oh, it's a really super complex situation. Mm. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's a religious conflict um, and nobody's really right. There's no solution and it's never going to stop. Um, the actuality of the matter is this conflict has only been going on for just over 100 years or so. It's very much a political conflict rather than a religious one. And the the facts are that it's really not as complex as people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. So essentially what's going on in Israel, sorry, in Palestine is a modern day colonial project. So you have a situation where there's a project by the state of Israel to essentially take over the land of Palestine and from essentially the early 1900s, this has been happening through migration, through the development of militant militias, um, by arming Israeli the Israeli population, um, and then eventually claiming the land for themselves through a process of ethnic cleansing. Mm. And that process is continuing today. You have a situation where Palestinians are um, essentially treated as second-class citizens through a really intricate but very systematic uh, set, like, legal system. Mm. So there are several sets of laws that apply to Palestinians that don't apply to Israelis, and Palestinians are treated under military law. Yeah, and not only that, there's not only one system that applies to Palestinians that doesn't apply to Israeli. It's not that they're oppressed in one way. There's four different ways. So there's four different ways that apply to Palestinians in different parts of Palestine. So there's one that applies to Palestinians from um, Jerusalem, which people call them Palestinians from 48, because 48 is when Jerusalem was first occupied during the Nakba. So there's one that applies to Palestinians from the West Bank, one that applies from Palestinians from Gaza, and one that applies to Palestinians from... Um. I think they're just refugees in general, yeah. so people who have been um, displaced from their homes. So there's, a re- like Dylan said, it's a really complex system of oppression. So I think that's really important to clarify because when we're talking about animal rights, when we're talking about their veganism, this is all happening in this context of occupation and displacement. Yeah, and just touching on what the what the what those laws look like in everyday life, it looks like checkpoints everywhere. Even within Palestinian territory, Palestinians are subject to really kind of harsh uh, checkpoint systems. It looks like Israelis, Israeli soldiers killing Palestinians um, and then planting knives on them to make the Palestinian look like the aggressor. It looks like um, the state of Israel appropriating Palestine's water reserves, taking that for Israeli citizens and then only giving a small portion of that back to Palestinians. Selling it back. Selling it back back. at high prices. Mm -hmm. And to to make sure they have enough water, all Palestinian households have to make sure they store it in a water tank. So even that that one thing is just a constant everyday stress Mm. that's going to work away at you. Yeah, so a really easy way to tell a Palestinian home from an Israeli settler's home is you look on top of the building to see if they have a water tank. Mm. If they don't, it's a settlement a settler's home and if they do then it's a Palestinian home mm. wow yeah and I think that that idea of like it's so complex and you don't know what's going on it's sort of a tool of the Israeli state to go you don't know enough therefore don't comment or don't Completely. take a side and it's like yeah I could probably know more about exactly who the president of Israel was in 1974 mm. whatever but I've seen the maps I've seen the loss of land I've seen you know the different laws as you say for Palestinians as opposed to you know Jewish Israeli settl- mm. settlers etc so yeah and I think um, maybe we'll do this at the end but you can also give anything now but I, a documentary I saw which is very old now but it still does give that context was a John Pilger documentary it's mm-hmm. called Palestine is still the issue and yeah it was talking about a lot of those ongoing oppression um, yeah Palestinian people face in terms of yeah examples of women having to give birth at checkpoints and not been allowed through and just yeah mm-hmm. really systemic oppression they live under are there any resources or we can share at the end if you'd rather but um, um 
I can't think off the top of my head. I know groups that are working mm. in resistance, and I think they're definitely important to share. So we did some tours with um, Grassroots J- Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which are a really amazing group who are working like, within Palestinian, Palestinian resistance, and they're work. They're one of the only groups working on like a long-term strategic plan. So mm. a lot at the moment, at least, a lot of the resistance is quite short term as people have been just oppressed for so long that it's quite hard to think long term so this group grassroots jerusalem has really focused on building a long-term plan and a vision of the future that sees um achievable liberation of palestinian people so i think i know some groups i'll definitely have a think uh, mm. as we go through yeah. about some more resources that people can do to get some more education yep yeah we'll definitely give um but in terms of um moving do you think we've said enough about the thing like if there's yeah, anything else yeah. you want to say about the comp- context where we, again i know we could do a whole mm. hour on this but <laughs> yeah. is there anything you'd particularly yeah. like to get out before we move on talking about veganism and animal activism there i think it's sort of i think we've painted a decent picture um i think one thing that we've probably not touched on is the fact that a lot of this is about land mm. and that a big part of um, what's going on is in Palestine is all about seizing land, um, and that looks like you know demolishing Palestinian houses. It looks like building separation walls to seize land in really kind of uh, Machiavellian ways, almost. Um, and I think just yeah, looking at the sort of political context that we've laid out, it's an interesting way to say the least. It's an interesting place to say the least in which to talk about animal rights. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Yes. So we'll, we'll move on to talking about <laughs> veganism now, but obviously that political context would definitely be underlying a lot of the discussions we have and probably sometimes quite explicit as well. But I guess we can't talk about animal <laughs> activism, veganism without, like, every, you know, animal activism, veganism occurs in a certain political context. And I think sometimes we can forget that or leave mm-hmm. that out when we're talking about animal activism. But um, what we're going to do now is we're going to play actually a little bit of a podcast episode. So we've been playing quite a few. We've been playing, like, stand-up comedy and little clips and stuff. So I thought I'd keep going with that so this is actually from a podcast called the infinite monkey cage which is a science and comedy podcast and on the episode future of the universe the rise of veganism come has come up and it is something we've been commenting on the show quite a lot lately of this idea of like veganism being everywhere and we're going to talk about this in in the context of israel which um, dylan has already mentioned so yeah we're just going to play a little bit of this uh, infinite monkey cage episode talking about veganism last year this time last year there were five vegans in the uk now <laughs> Mm-hmm. McDonald's, I think, has a vegan menu. There's like 600,000 of them out of nowhere, like they were in a cupboard going boo. And suddenly, something, something in that idea, something in the idea of health and in the idea that there's climate is attached to that notion. It's slightly problemat- more problematic than people make out, but nonetheless, that is uh, an impetus to, to take up that diet. It's gone crazy. So it's clearly possible. What is it about that specific mm. thing that has caught people's imagination? On March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. You're listening to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves and we're joined by Dylan Fernando talking about animal activism in Palestine. 
And yeah, I mean, the clip there was Infinite Monkey Cage. I, I quite like that podcast. If you um, want to hear more of that, you can search the Infinite Monkey Cage online or in your favorite podcast app. I did want to just briefly mention they mentioned the claims for environmental veganism. Maybe weren't that solid. So if you do want to hear more about that, um, the most recent time we've covered that in the show was uh, David Hun, uh, Melbourne Climate Save. So you can find that at Freedom of Species or on iTunes. And it's something we've covered a lot in the show before. So you can hear the yeah, stats and all that kind of stuff on the environmental impact of of animal agriculture but the reason i played that clip was um there's been a lot of discussions in australian animal activism just worldwide about this sort of as dylan mentioned at the start of sort of israel being this vegan mecca etc um so yeah i'm curious about um in terms of yeah i guess that discussion about veganism in israel and was that something that uh people in palestine were kind of aware of or was, was something that came up on your tour or your time there it was certainly, it was actually sort of the reason that the tour was created because it, initially it wasn't, um, it wasn't sort of a, it didn't have so much of a focus on being an international tour. So initially it was sort of just run for, um, it was run by a Brazilian woman and just for Brazilians. And then as this sort of vegan washing campaign came out by the state of Israel, where they're presenting it as, you know, oh, the best city to be vegan, oh, you know, this is the only military uh, that you can be a part of and be vegan. Um, and so Palestinian vegans started going, well, you know, what can we do about this? And so, you know, they didn't have the funding to bring bloggers over to, to Palestine like the Israeli state did. But they did have the capacity to do these tours, so they opened the tours up internationally, and that sort of uh, that 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 is what kind of started it up. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're very aware of the fact that Israel is kind of using this narrative of a vegan paradise to make itself look really good in the international light. And this, interestingly, we found out this wasn't really the first time that Israel has tried to do this. So. Israel has previously and still currently engages in a pinkwashing campaign as well, where they sort of really spruik themselves as the they spruik themselves as the only city in the Middle East where uh, the only country in the Middle East where you can be openly gay, mm. um, and they're really big about that. And you know, it's a situation where they're kind of trying to use this to to hide the fact that they are they're engaging in a massive oppressive colonial Mm -hmm. project. And the interesting thing is that this kind of narrative is not only used externally, it's also used internally amongst their own people. So like, um, actually who, like, we talked about Esther, um, before Esther Alum, and she's done a really interesting like study, um, interviewing soldiers in the Israeli army, like vegan soldiers Mm -hmm. and having their kind of like talking to them about, why you know being vegan they've they feel comfortable participating as a soldier in this oppression and there's this one conversation which our guide was telling us about that just we were just talking to her about this and she was telling that she heard this one conversation where this young so in israel there's compulsory military service um three years compulsory military service from when you turn 18 so most soldiers you see are like 18 to 21 they're very young and there was a conversation that was had between a young um, Israeli soldier who was vegan and in this interview she said that her commitment to not harming any life was so strong that if she wasn't allowed to be vegan in the army she wouldn't have refused her compulsory military service Mm. and I think that kind of contradiction is so interesting that these narratives are so strong that people don't even realize that you know by going into the army by you know, actively oppressing and in a lot of cases killing Palestinian people, they're not, they're, they still feel that they're aligning with their values of veganism because they can wear vegan boots and have vegan meals. So it's a really interesting contradiction that's happening inside Israel as well as a really interesting kind of narrative that's being projected out into the world. Mm, yeah, and it is interesting, like, I guess these bloggers who have a big platform and maybe haven't looked into the issue, it kind of almost seems like a depoliticized tour. So as mm. I go, I get to give a talk about veganism, then I go get a tour around to get all the vegan food. It's like, if you haven't looked into the issue, like, what's the problem? And I think that's a lot of the reaction. Mm. Um, but as Dylan mentioned before, like, these these uh, tours are done by groups that are at least partially funded by the Israeli government as a way to sort of, as you say, sort of pink wash, humane wash the occupation of, mm. you know, Israel just distracting the, fa- the focus 
focus from the occupation towards oh israel is great you know, for vegan food or it's great for lgbt people etc um sort of overlooking the fact well maybe not if you're a palestinian queer person for example maybe mm. not so much so it's sort of over yeah sort of overlooking that and i guess this is on the part of the israeli state to not only sort of win people over to their position generally but i think particularly more progressive minded people who might be vegan or might be queer or pro-queer or whatever mm. it's kind of trying to get those people over but I guess those people who are sort of concerned about those issues, as Harley mentioned, should also be concerned not just are the boots vegan, but what what are we doing like more systemically in, in this yeah. country too? So, um, and I want to, unless there's anything else about veganism, maybe we'll move on to Palestine now. Mm. Any, yeah, yeah. So we're going to Palestine. So what was uh, vegan food like in Palestine? Were there many vegan restaurants or, yeah? Or, no, not really vegan restaurants. I yeah. don't think there's any vegan restaurants in Palestine at the mm. moment, but the food is unbelievable. Sensational. Like. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to eat, like, store-bought hummus from here again <laughs> after having it's... it in Israel. Sorry, in Palestine. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So... It's really interesting in Palestine because a lot of food is default vegan. Mm. Um, they don't really use animal products in food, partly because it's so expensive mm. and it's seen as like a real luxury. So like we were told by our guide on the first day, like if they have something like, you know, yogurt, mm. like cow's milk yogurt, they will eat it. They won't put it in things. Same with like, an, like chicken's eggs. They will eat them separate because they're so expensive they won't put them in a cake so most of their like sweets most of their um food unless it specifically says it has an animal product in it it's usually vegan mm. like um it's usually plant-based so mm. yeah it was really easy to eat vegan mm. um while we were over there yeah absolutely and a lot of sort of their staple foods are you know inherently plant-based so you're talking about things like you know, your breads your salads mm. um but then you've also got things like hummus uh, they use uh, you know chickpeas are really widely used mm. they have a lot of eggplant dishes as well they have falafel um and then there's of course zatar which is a herb mix they use in a lot of different scenarios and yeah like harley mentioned they're sweets as well so you know for for example any any um baklava that you eat in palestine would generally be vegan it wouldn't be made with honey mm. um but something really interesting that was something that kind of rose up more and more as we were there is that their food like is so important like it's really important it's a really important part of culture but it's also like a product of colonization and the way they think about food and the way they think about veganism as well is a real product of colonization so the conversation so what we noticed was that people have a real like it's kind of a culture there's a culture of compassion and that doesn't just extend to humans so we saw so many street cats as like just so many street cats it's incredible like how many you'll see like you're just walking along the street and there'll be cats everywhere we did i think we saw one cat or so who looked underfed because people feed the cats as well and they'll let them inside if it's and they're not like pets as we call them you know they're mm. just cats who live in the same neighborhood as humans and humans see them as kind of cohabitants of that neighborhood and that's a lot of the way people think about other animals in that sense so there's this real culture of compassion and that kind of feeds into those a lot of like kind of tradition around even like when you eat animals, how you do that, how you kill animals. And I'm not saying that the way they kill animals is right or just or fair. I don't think there's any way to kill animal kill kill someone in the right way. But I think the thought behind that is most of the time it's doing this in a way that's fair and doing this in a way that's compassionate. So what I think often gets in the way of vegan the vegan kind of conversation is not a lack of compassion or not of a lack of belief that other animals like other species share value with humans more so it's a kind of a thing around their food which is that food is so important to them and food has also been a source of comfort and a source of kind of measuring how comfortable you are so in palestine people usually only eat an animal if a guest is over because it's so expensive mm. so it's like if they can afford to eat an animal, they're not doing too badly. So it's kind of a, a bit of a barometer of how they are, how they're doing, how they're how financially stable they are. So it's a symbol of wealth, but it's also a symbol of security. And that is often a real like large like 
product of colonization. So the fact they call lentils, which are a massive staple in Palestinian food, they make so many food with lentils and they call lentils the poor man's chicken Mm. and they'll call eggplant the poor man's meat. Mm. And that, you know, I don't think, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure that that hasn't come from decades of and thousands of years of Palestinian culture. That's come from colonization where chickens have been seen as a staple food when like their real staples are really plant-based and that, but then it's become that flesh, animal flesh has been seen as a symbol of status and it's been seen as a symbol of wealth. So it's really interesting how they think about food, but it's, and I think what Powell finds is it's often hard to have that conversation because you can't just say you should just stop eating chickens because they're like, but then I'm poor. Mm-hmm. If I'm not eating that symbol of wealth, then people will think that I'm poor and they're going, you know, they're under occupation. They're living in this world where there's, there's these little symbols that mean so much. So, yeah, Dylan, would you... Oh, I think you've covered pretty much everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I wanted to jump in in mm. terms of the, um, yeah, in terms of like falafel and hummus and stuff. Mm. I know there's been critiques of like, you know, for example, these vegan tours of like, you know, enjoy, enjoy like Israeli food. And obviously mm. there is falafel and hummus in Israel, but it's not <laughs> yes. the only place and it is mm. traditionally Palestinian food as well, et cetera, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that issue. Yeah. I mean, our guide, our guide had a really interesting conversation with um, an, is- an Israeli person and she was talking to them about, you know, she was basically saying, you know, how can you take these foods like falafel and hummus and call them Israeli when, you know, they're obviously from Palestine? Mm-hmm. And then the person, you know, the, that argument was going back and forth. But then eventually they kind of conceded and they're like, okay, well, we call them we call them Israeli because we eat them in Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see that that logic doesn't really flow because then, you know, you can say that okay, you know, we eat dal in Australia, but mm. dal clearly isn't Australian. Yeah, so you yeah. have this, yeah, you have an interesting situation where Israel mm. is very much taking what is Palestinian and trying to transform that as well, very much is erasing what Palestinian mm. food is. Mm. Yeah, and you see that particularly with um, zata, which is, like we mentioned, is a real big staple. It's used by itself and also in the kind of herb mix, which is also known as zata. And zata grows wild across Palestine. But under Israeli law, Palestinians are now forbidden, like it's illegal for them to forage and collect zata. So, which is, and they say they say it's an endangered species, but if you look anywhere in the in Palestine or in Israel, zata is growing like free range across everywhere. the hills and it's <laughs> everywhere. And they used to collect it, like that's a big part of a lot of people's kind of survival. They collected zata and they ate it and they sold it. So that's... It's just one example of how Israel kind of uses food systems to continue this process of colonization by kind of erasing Palestinian culture and disconnecting them from their land and from their ability to make like ability to thrive off their own food systems. Mm, yeah, and I think also this issue brings up another um, yeah issue in terms of how we measure sort of success or how animal friendly a country mm. is because Israel is is sort of marketed as a really vegan friendly country because quite a large number of pe- number of people identify as vegan and there's quite a lot of vegan restaurants. Mm. Um, but if you look at the animal consumption in Palestine, it's far far lower. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's interesting that as you say, there's not many explicitly vegan restaurants and not necessarily a high proportion of people identifying as vegan but i guess in terms of like number of animals slaughtered they'd be doing much better so they could be viewed as the yeah animal friendly nation so yeah how do you think about that in terms of measuring success in terms of number of vegans Mm. yeah i think it's really inherently problematic and something that you touched on is that israel is actually like it's it's very high up there um in terms of the rate of animal consumption it's. I think they're about on par with Australia, and I know that Australia is somewhere in the top five. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's highly problematic to rate success on the number of vegans because th- that's from the perspective of a movement for animals or a movement that's standing in solidarity with animals. You're kind of forgetting the animals there because mm. the reality is that there's still a massive amount of animal lives mm. being taken in that scenario. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah. I think also it's really just hard to inherently measure something like speciesism by looking at humans. I think, like Dan said, and I think something that really springs to mind for me there is just the different stories that we saw in Israel and in Palestine. So we spent one day in Tel Aviv, 
I don't think we could have spent any more. It was awful. <laughs> and I'm, I don't think we were just biased. It was mm. one of the worst days of my life. Um, <laughs> it's very stressful. Mm. And so I mentioned earlier about the street cats. Um, and Pal have this really interesting philosophy around street cats and dogs where they've they've started this veterinary clinic where they treat street cats and street dogs. And there's a, there's a massive population of street cats and street dogs in Palestine. And we were talking to the founder of Pal about what he's kind of because they're not a shelter they mm. can't keep dogs they treat them and then they usually either rehome them or kind of release them but they can't really rehome any dogs or cats because they don't have the facilities and we were talking to him about like is if that's a bit of a pressure and he said that he would prefer to treat a dog and then release them back into their home which is like a community where they kind of live wild mm. release them back into their home rather than keep them in a cage in a shelter mm. And that was like really different to the narrative that we hear often in Australia. So that was something that we really thought about. And then we ended up in Tel Aviv for one day and we were walking past this park and we saw, uh, it would have been like 20, 30. Yeah, I think there was about, yeah, at least, at least 20. Yeah, at least 20 dogs tied up really short leases to this fence mm. on a really busy street. Like there mm. were thousands, it was during Pride. So there were thousands of people walking past. It was loud. It was noisy. The dogs were fighting and barking and we we're really confused as to what, going on, what was going on. So we walked up to one of the people who was standing there and we we're like, why are the dogs here? And they said, oh, this is an adoption day. Mm. And we we're like, oh, and they were an animal shelter. Yeah. And that was really kind of, shocking to us because it showed the different narratives where Israel is this vegan paradise and they have shelters and they have adoption days and they have this kind of Western narrative of how we care for animals. Palestine is completely different, yet what we saw in contrast was this, on one hand, was this respect for animals' autonomy, was this respect for their life and their freedom and their ability to find a home and choose that home. And on the other hand, in Israel, we saw these dogs tied up to fences used basically as like propaganda tool for people walking past to go mm. oh cute dogs i'll give you some money because they were fundraising at the same time mm. we didn't see any dog being adopted but no. we saw lots of people giving like loose change into the bowls they were holding so, it was too loud there to even have a conversation with someone let alone adopt a dog so mm. yeah it was very much sort of a fundraising initiative and mm. yeah it's like from what we saw palestine palestinians or the palestinian activists that we saw very much were sort of seeing animals as cohabitants of the land we live on rather than sort of the, the victim narrative that, that I think we tend to cling to in the West and mm. I would suppose in Israel as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I guess like that's shown in another story we were told by the co-founder of PAL, um, which was when um, during a gas... Like, I, um, where Israeli, like, they dropped gas? Uh, the Israeli uh, soldiers had... Um, they were at the Jalazone refugee camp in Ramallah and they had um, they had launched tear gas canisters into a crowd and essentially um, what had happened was a pigeon got caught in the tear gas and flown into a window flown into a window as a result of that and so what happened was there, there was a bunch of people who were concerned for the pigeon and so they ran back um, through the tear gas to get the pigeon and what ended up happening was um, the ambulance staff who were there, the Palestinian ambulance staff, took the pigeon uh, into a separate ambulance and treated the pigeon with an o with um, and they put a full um, oxygen mask on the pigeon just to wow. give them yeah. that oxygen back and managed to nurse them back to health. Yeah. So there were two ambulances. One they loaded the humans into. There was a ho another whole ambulance, and they're like, "What's happened to the pigeon? What's happened to the pigeon?" They're like, "Oh, they're in the other ambulance." Mm. And they found out later that yeah, they'd been putting the oxygen mask on the pigeon. They'd been wiping their eyes. And there really is, even though there is not much of a vegan narrative, there really is this view of other species as, yeah, like cohabitants, as kind of not just victims, not just commodities, not just individuals who are less than humans in any way. Even though they do eat them, they see them a lot of the time as, yeah, other people in this struggle. Mm -hmm. So... It was, yeah, interesting to see that contrast from the, you know, vegan paradise to the what's often portrayed in at least the Israeli narrative as the, you know, barbaric animal eating carnivores. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And I guess that's that's probably a good place to start talking a little bit about the whole 
narrative around savagery that is used by the state of Israel to make Palestinians look like terrorists. Um, so a very a very big part of it of of what the Israeli sort of narrative is all about is okay you know these people are primitive they're lesser than us they don't they won't show respect to us there's a big sort of narrative that palestinians want to kill all jews and that that narrative around savagery is really interesting because you see that in many other scenarios as well you see that um in scenarios uh around other oppressed minorities like with um the, the savagery narrative was used to justify slavery. Um, it was used to justify the uh, the what happened in Australia during colonisation, and so I really don't think what's we, still happening. What's in still happening in Australia, mm. um, and I, I really don't think that we can kind of separate uh, this. What what we like to do as vegans is as and many in sort of mainstream. Uh, ideologies around veganism try to sort of look at it and say you know we're vegans we're all about the animals we don't want to be political but this idea that there is a category of individuals if we consider them savage and if we can cast them as like lesser than us then we can inflict violence that creates the conditions for violence Mm -hmm. and so as vegans as animal activists i think we really need to look at these at situations like this and understand what are the ideologies that are going on here and how can we dismantle them to create a world where we there isn't a category that justifies violence. We just have to show, you know, it's normal to show respect for absolutely everyone. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at this idea that, oh, Israel is doing so much good by being so vegan-friendly, we can ignore the Palestinian situation we are simply, I would say, we're perpetuating the problem. Mm, we're doing the same thing that I think we often do in the vegan movement a lot where this person is doing so much good for the animals that we can ignore the ways that they're racist or the ways that they've perpetuated sexual sexual assault or some uh, things like that. So I think there's those are narratives that seem to repeat inside the vegan movement a lot where there's this kind of idea that if someone or a group of people or even a city, a country, is doing good in one way, then it's right to ignore the things they're doing in another side. I think there's this label that our guide told us about, which is um, uh, progr- um, we, p- people who are PEPs, so P-E-P, which is progressive except Palestine. Mm. And I think we need to create a culture where it, you can't be that. Like, mm. it's just not accepted to... Because I don't think we can... It shouldn't. Like, I don't think we have the excuse not to be educated anymore. And yeah, mm. yeah. And I guess um, we've spoken a bit about how Palestinians view animals and, or yeah, some of the dominant trends and how they might be different. But in terms of the activism um, and also linking it to the veganism, and again, Esther Alan, who we've already mentioned, is probably my primary source on this mm. topic. And one thing she raised was that at least the activists she spoke to, veganism wasn't their primary focus. So yeah, yeah I'm wondering like what sort of animal activism was going on. You mentioned sort of helping out with like sort of companion animals, or that that is Definitely, in a different yeah. sense how we view it. But uh, what are some things doing on um, they were doing there, and was there a focus on veganism, or was that not really their main priority? Yeah. yeah. So veganism, I would say, was pretty secondary for them. Mm -hmm. And that's partly strategic. So it's partly that veganism is not something that a lot of people are open to at this time. Mm -hmm. So part of their rationale is that they're having those conversations. They definitely are. They have like a vegan club Mm -hmm. in Ramallah, which holds uh, monthly events. And that's going really well. And they've tried a couple of times to open like vegan restaurants, but they haven't worked out. So at this, this point, part of the... Like they do talk to people about veganism, but it's a little bit secondary just because people aren't ready for that conversation. Mm. One of the main thing that Pal does, which is actually how they started, is this group called uh, Youth for Change. So it's a move, a program called Youth for Change, and that aims to break the cycle of violence. So what they noticed was that what was happening a lot was that there would be you know a young boy say who was beaten by a soldier, and that boy would come back to his his home his refugee camp say and then he would beat a dog because you know there's this built-up frustration there's this built-up anger and there's this idea that violence is what you do um to those who are below you so he's been seen as below this israeli soldier he's been beaten he goes home he sees this dog as below him he beats them then he might grow up and then he might beat his wife 
So they noticed this cycle of violence where people were having a violence inflicted against them and then they would go on to inflict violence against those who they see as lesser than them. Mm. So the program Youth for Change aims to break that. So it runs workshops and like educational programs within communities working with young people primarily and helping them to understand the way that violence is inflicted against them and redirect those feelings of anger and frustration in different, more positive ways. So really the aim is to help young people go from being, you know, really angry, go from being really frustrated and go from turning into sources of violence into helping them transform that anger into other ways of resisting. So nonviolence, into positively contributing to the community, into being community leaders and things like that. So that's one of the ways they're doing that. And that is kind of symbolic of the way um, Pal kind of sees human rights, animal rights and land rights really interconnected. Mm. So, yeah, did you want to talk about the Bedouin? Yeah, so they've also um, tried to work with uh, Bedouin tribes uh, who use working animals, so donkeys, um, for example, and basically they've, that's that's a situation where, you know, the Bedouins face quite a struggle because of um, the Israeli kind of approach to taking Palestinian land. And so having that conversation about saying, oh, you know, we'd really like you to not using these working animals anymore. That's quite tough. It's obviously what uh, Ahmed and the Palestinian Animal League, Ahmed is the founder of the Palestinian Animal League. Um, it's what they would like, it's what they would like the conversation to be around, um, but it's really difficult to have that conversation at the moment. So at the moment, it's more, it's more very much um, a welfare conversation and sort of trying to make conditions better for those donkeys um, at the moment. Um I think for yeah. Pal, there's a lot of compromise, mm. um, which would be frustrating, but also Absolutely. something that's really important to them and to most Palestinians in general is this idea of community. So rather than choosing to hold this strongly abolitionist stance and not build relationships mm. within communities, they most of the time choose to go in and have those really hard conversations inside communities and understand that they kind of have to meet people where they're at, especially because these are people living under occupation. A lot of the time they're focusing on their own survival and the survival of their children. And a lot of the time these are habits that have been ingrained in them for so long that the idea of changing them whilst they're being continually oppressed is just really hard so what they do is they try and go in and build these relationships and they meet people where they're at and they try and make small changes which will help the the animals who are being oppressed and they also help the humans who are being oppressed so it's a lot about community building and having those conversations and building those connections yeah and people are really connecting with pal in a significant way and just a small example of that is um, there was someone who owns some out-of-home billboard advertising in Ramallah and they have offered PAL to to be able to show a 15-second video on that billboard for a week and they said that that would play each day about 600 times. Mm. So that's a small way to show that that people are really resonating with what PAL is doing and the reason that Ahmed reckons that is happening is that PAL is really tapping into what the people care about and it's tapping into the mindset of the people rather than kind of going in with this, uh, you know, this this idea that, you know, we know everything, here's the solution, you're all wrong. Yeah, it's very much about building up those connections, those communities, those relationships um, rather than a really confrontational approach. Mm. And I guess just to clarify, and I'm pretty sure this is clear, but just uh, the activists themselves were vegan themselves. Yeah, 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 they were vegan, but for pragmatic or the because of the context they're in, it was kind of hard to sort of have that as their main yes. campaign. Yeah. I guess. Yes. Yeah. We, we better take a track. So we're going to play a song which is all about uh, this, this occupation and the situation there. So this is Jamaica Plain, I Won't Run. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And 
everything can change. You're listening to Freedom of Species, bringing you animal advocacy on the airwaves of 3CR. Uh, me and Harley are joined by Dylan Fernando, who has recently been to Palestine, as well as Harley as well. So, yeah, in the last few minutes, we're going to talk a bit about something that came up earlier and this idea of, um, I guess, yeah, some of the different ways in which uh, people sort of interact with animals or have companion animals in some sense, but in, in some countries, as you've touched on, the differences there between Palestine and Israel and maybe how things are done here, which might be similar to Israel, I guess. Um, yeah, some of the different ways that can be done. And just from my own experience as well, going to Thailand, I saw a lot of uh, dogs just roaming the streets. And yeah, it was quite interesting. And I definitely don't necessarily want to glorify and say it was clearly better than what we do here because there probably were issues like with veterinary care, for example, which might not be as good of a standard as you know, as it is in Australia, for example, and you know probably more get hit by cars, etc. So I definitely could see pros and cons. But after going there, I couldn't necessarily decide that the way that they did it there was better uh, than the way, or the way we do it here is better than what was done over there. And I know uh, from family in Indonesia, it's kind of the same thing and maybe sound a little bit like in Palestine in that people sort of have a cat, they just feed them, they don't necessarily have, or a dog, like they're not in your yard all day, they're kind of around, but that that meant that they had a lot more freedom than dogs here. Uh, They had, they sort of were in packs, they sort of had like friends rather than sort of being isolated or just spending time with humans. So yeah, again, I I saw pros and cons, but it was kind of interesting because yeah, I couldn't really work out what was really necessarily the best way to do things. But yeah, any thoughts on yeah, the I guess the, maybe the best way or what could be a better way to do this? I don't know if we could necessarily comment on what could be mm. a better or best way, but I, I think it, it or is... Or any different ways that yeah. it is done, I guess, yeah. Yeah, like I think it is important for us to sort of to question the, the narratives that we, we that we have here. Sort of, I think, I think sort of how we kind of... Um, view the future happening if we were sort of sort of to proceed with a vegan world is that we would like to have a future where we perhaps some people sort of see us living completely without other animals or some people see us living with um you know with a continued um almost still where we very much govern animals autonomy Mm. and so i think you know what we've what you talked about in thailand what we've seen in palestine is where um you've got a situation where dogs and cats are very much sort of cohabitant more so cats in palestine but they're they're very much like coexisting on the land with humans and i guess we can sort of start to think about, okay, how can that look while being, um, while being a sustainable situation for everyone? How can we provide proper health care to animals living in those situations? And how can we provide shelter while allowing them that degree of autonomy that, yeah, allows them to kind of uh, to have friends who are other animals and kind of go wherever they like, do what they like to do, to just sort of be dogs and cats. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing because often you'll have a discussion, you know, with someone and there's this, I guess, deep assumption that if... I think this is often a discussion I have with other vegans where it's like if we didn't keep animals, if we didn't confine them, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with humans. And I don't think that's necessarily true in Mm. many senses. So we know that most species don't stray far from home, you know. They'll have a home and they, you know, like we hear stories about a lot of different species traveling really long distances to go back to their home. And I don't think that's necessarily because they have this deep, unshakable bond with their humans, although I'm not um, discounting that a lot of animals do have bond with their humans. I think they do, but I think it's more that they have a sense of home just like we do. Mm. And I think one thing I remember Delana and I were walking through like the streets of um, Ida refugee camp, which is where we stayed, and we were looking, you know, just saying hello to the street cats as we do. There's lots of there's lots of them. They all look very happy, well fed. They stay like they stay together. They have lots of like they have places they hang out. They have places that they sleep. Um, they're very comfortable in that environment. And we were talking about how, in an idea like a nice idealized vision of the future, we would love to live in a community where. It was a community that happened to have humans living there that also happened to have other species living there. They weren't confined by humans and they weren't owned by humans. Mm. They just happened to live in the same places at the same time. Mm. And I do think that is quite a way way off because you would have to have things like, you know, citizenship rights, which entitle people to health care. You'd have Mm. to have some element of, you know, allowing 
individuals to access healthcare, which could would, would probably involve some form of confinement at some point in their lives. But I think it is really something that's interesting and worth thinking about. Like, how can we coexist rather mm. than care for, I guess? Like, mm. caring for as part of community rather than as a kind of guardianship, paternalistic role. Mm. So. Yeah. yeah, and I did have that dilemma a few times. I remember when I was back in Perth, I'd often see stray dogs. And after a certain time, the only place you could take to, them to was a certain, um, I think it was a like a university that had like a vet thing or whatever. And I heard afterwards or at some point that they generally just killed the, mm. the dogs there. And I was kind of like, well, in a way, like why not just let them run free? Like it's not ideal, but like it's better than sort of putting them. And I, th- I think that idea of like we have to have them, they have to have an owner or yeah. we have to kill them is very much based on more a human notion of control and we don't want to see animals run around the street because mm. then Australia will look like these other countries that are viewed as like less than or yeah. worse than us rather than actually a genuine concern for animals in a lot of the cases more about yeah control and portraying a certain image of it like Australia or whatever Western country has been like clean and control and ordered and all these kind of things rather than for the animals themselves so yeah we did also an episode a while ago on pets and animal animal liberation check that out you can check all episodes out at freedomofspecies.org and on iTunes again Esther Alound episode is well worth checking out as well Um, we'll get to some plugs on Palestine just a second but I want to quickly mention an event who uh, familiar name is in the speaker list Uh, do you want to give a quick uh, plug for those details Harley? Yeah sure so um as most of you hopefully know uh, the melbourne march to close all slaughterhouses is happening next saturday the 6th of april from 11 o'clock to three o'clock so we're starting this year at flagstaff gardens which is um 311 william street west melbourne so near flagstaff station uh guest speakers include yamani i'm gonna get this wrong narayanan narayanan (laughs) who's a senior lecturer at deakin university uh me, Harley McDonald Eckersall, and Tamsin Ramsey, plus there's some more speakers to be announced really soon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely come along. It's going to be a really great day, and it's always great to show up to those marches, I think. Mm-hmm. So you can search Melbourne March Close All Slaughterhouses 2019 on Facebook. Also, I've recently shared that on the Freedom of Species Facebook and, Twitter, on Facebook and Twitter pages, so you can find it on both of those places. Uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for both of you for coming in, and thanks for joining us as our guest today, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting and I'm sure we could say a lot more and uh, definitely even that topic of different ways of sort of related animals is a big one that could be all of these could maybe be future episodes but uh, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time a reminder tune into our show 1 till 2 every Sunday via 855am or via 3cr.org.au next week we're actually going to do an election special and get some different candidates and how they're seeing animal issues this election so stay tuned for that next week also stay tuned for Encyclopedia to heal all issues around uh, drug drug issues and policy and all that kind of stuff so always great stuff make sure you stay tuned uh, keep it locked to 855am for Encyclopedia. Uh, you can contact us with feedback info at freedomofspecies.org as well as on social media and yeah Harley and Dylan or one, yeah, do you want to announce this final song which you've chosen? Yeah sure so the last song we wanted to play is a song called My Blood is Palestinian which is from a young singer from Gaza called Muhammad Asaf so yeah it's an amazing song about Palestinian resistance enjoy